unimaginable complexity. How are leaders today supposed to make consistently great decisions, especially in the absence of tangible information? How can a leader operate across different cultures and marketplaces and not let their inherent biases affect their decision making? Today on IMI's Talking Leadership podcast, we're joined by Kriti Jane, a behavioral scientist passionate about developing research and training leaders in making better decisions. A teacher on PhD courses in behavioral science and experimental methods, as well as being one of the lead program directors on IMI's leadership decision-making developmental program for senior leaders. In 2018, Critty was also included on the prestigious Thinkers 50 list, which recognizes the best management thinking of the day. In short, the perfect person to talk to you on this subject. So Critty, welcome. Thank you for taking the call. My pleasure. My pleasure to be talking to you today. So I'm going to start with the sort of state of play, the the 30,000 feet view. What are the differences for leaders when it comes to making decisions in the current environment to say 20, 30 years ago? Right. So I think in uh, many ways, when I think about decision making, I think it's been a complex task that has occupied the human mind since ages. You know, there are these famous historical anecdotes that most of us are aware of. If you think about Charles Darwin, I think there's a story around him that says he was indecisive on being (laughs) whether he should marry or not. And he actually Mm -hmm. came out with a list of all the things that would cause him a loss of time and things like quarreling and things like anxiety and taking (laughs) new responsibilities and not being able to read in the evening and so on. (laughs) Or in fact, Benjamin Franklin, even before that, uh, we we know he used to make up these pros and cons lists uh, and actually weigh them uh, and, you know, cut out Equal, equally weighted pros and cons and come mm. up with some kind of a solution. So in that sense, the science or if I say uh, the art of decision making has been around for a long time, right? I think what's changing today for uh, decision makers is the pace of change and it is mm. unprecedented. Uh, before I think leaders realize uh, the full extent of, of the outcomes of their decisions, the world order has already changed. Mm. And I think what's happening because of that is uh, the biggest problems of that is that we are not able to learn uh, you know did what did I make the right decision or was it uh, I had a good process but the world changed and I had bad luck so we are not getting the right feedback mm. to be able to hone and sharpen the decision making process so I think that's the biggest change today and um- You mentioned actually Charles Darwin, and one of the things he's famous for was he he sort of sat on his theory of evolution for 30 years. I think it was Alfred Russell Wallace came up with the theory then as well, and suddenly Darwin was forced into action. This is the long way of going about what is role is speed of decision making playing today versus accuracy? Oh, I mean, accuracy is our ultimate goal, right? Mm. So at the end of the day, we want to be making very, very accurate decisions. But uh, there are several nuances to it. I think we, the naive mind judges uh, the decisions based on the accuracy of the outcomes. Mm. Uh, but if if I put on my decision scientist hat, I think it's the process that needs to be uh, needs to be checked and looked at because there are so many other uncontrollable factors. You might call it luck or chance, probabilities that that just cannot be controlled. So I think if you have a good decision making process, 
I think that's that's already a lot. And speed is one big component of that because I think what is what we're seeing today in the organizations is that uh, we have tons of systems to make decisions and so on, but yeah. uh, sometimes what people lack is the ability to take that call or to speed up the process. Mm. And I think procrastination is one strategy when uh, people are uncomfortable with the changes around them. That's, uh, you know, let's look at it more. Let's figure out mm. new information and so on. So I think that's the subtlety involved in here. And when you talk to those leaders around decision making at the, the very top levels, what is the, you've mentioned a couple of them there. What's the thing that worries the most? What's sort of keeping them up at night when it comes to their decisions? Well, I think, uh, you know, so ironically, as much as uh, the pace of changes around us is like unprecedented, what I think most companies today are facing is this issue of indecision. Mm. Uh, in fact, I was recently speaking to a leadership team of one of the energy majors in Europe, and their problem was exactly this. No one wants to make the move. No one wants to take the charge. Mm. And uh, if uh, if you look around, I think most companies, if not all, are going through some kind of organizational change. Mm. Um, and But the problem is, uh, yeah, no one wants to take the, the accountability. In exec meetings, typically everyone seems to agree on a course of action. But after the meeting, people actually end up doing nothing or worse, they actually go back to what they were doing before. Yeah, yeah. So I think uh, the issue of indecision is, I think, one of the key uh, problems. I, I just wonder, just as you were talking there, is, is that a, a, a symptom of the sort of multinational? We see companies growing bigger and bigger, uh, you know, merging with each other. So suddenly there's 40,000 employees across 10,000 locations. Is is that is there bureaucracy developing now within these multinationals that used to move so quickly? Surely, surely. So bureaucracy, um, you know, redundancies in the way processes are being done, and this is all a result of the constant change that we have around us. Mm. Right? Companies are constantly merging, moving across nations, moving to borders which for, wherein they have no clue about. Mm. So, um, so I think it's the fear of change. Uh, and even though the changes is coming head on to us, the confusion that is in place on who's in charge and who should be taking the lead and what exactly needs to be done in what timeline, I think there is all of that that adds up to this issue of uh, indecision. Uh, but more so, I think, I think in all of this, we have to also remember that our inherently our human mind does just love status quo, you know? So, yeah. so yeah. I think that's the underlying problem as well. We always love safety. Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd like to drill down into a couple of aspects now. I, I read that the average person takes in around eight times more information than a person in a similar role to them 10 years ago. Are people being asked to make more decisions today than before? And, and what are the dangers there? Yeah, so I think, you know, the statistics that uh, you shared, they are actually worth deliberating on quite a bit, you know, because mm. what that means is that uh, we're floating in a sea of information, uh, yeah. information which is both useful but useless also at times, information that might be true but also fake. So I think 
the challenge is how do we filter out that relevant true information from what is not true what is fake and useless mm. in fact you might have even heard and uh, this this new term that is becoming quite popular which is called infoxicated so yeah. we are getting intoxicated with information so infoxicated <laughs> think about it right like the first thing that comes to your mind uh, the first thing that you do in the morning uh, probably is just checking your social media news linkedin emails mm -hmm. If you are a little uh, better on the health zone, maybe you do that after a glass of water, but you still do it. So, no, so I'm, I'm first thing out of bed. I have to say, before the lights are on, the light on my phone is on. <laughs> so I think the, the point that I'm getting on is that you know we have we are overdosing on information, mm. and one consequence of that is that we are just uh, exhausted. We are not ready when the time is there for us to make crucial decisions we are already exhausted and tired and uh, what happens is we then take shortcuts look for easy answers and this could range from you know being impatient in meetings or being impulsive or splurging not thinking carefully on certain things like uh, eating healthy or exercising or uh, and in fact i could think of bigger issues also like you know i'm thinking of decisions that require ethical considerations Mm -hmm. uh, where you need to control your self-interest and to think for larger good and so on. And if your mind is exhausted and tired, it's these uh, these decisions don't come easy. Decision fatigue is something that I've read a lot recently. It, it seems to be what you're talking about there. Uh, a silly tangent on that. Is this, do humans have a capacity for only a certain amount of decisions every day? In other words, should we be making those big strategic decisions in the morning where we're, we're more awake? Yeah, so I think that's a that's a observation that's spot on, right? So making decisions actually is like going to a gym where uh, we constantly work on one muscle repeatedly. Mm. It does get exhausted and tired, and there is a need for recovery and uh, sleep and so on. So it is pretty much like that. And uh, so you might have even heard of uh, some of the leaders who. Uh, wear the same kind of clothes every day yeah. and there is science on that yes there, it, there is scientific support to what they're doing it's not just idiosyncratic <laughs> um, also so to the point that you want to be making bigger important decisions uh, early in the day yes for sure there is also some bit of nuance in that for example some people are morning people and some people are the evening kinds yeah by by their um, behavior or by their you know upbringing or in fact some we've also found that there is some genetic basis to that so overall i think it's important to be in sync with your biological rhythm as well but mornings are the important parts where you want to be making the most important decisions yeah. be it your personal life you know be it like this point about going to the gym that uh, you need to cultivate or uh, yeah eating that healthy meal early in the morning so yeah. or to big strategic decisions of uh, in the workplace and when you talk about decision fatigue, uh, my mind often goes to computers uh, and machines. Uh, I play a very simple Connect 4 game on my phone when I'm bored sometimes, which is very narrow parameters. But I find myself after a couple of games very quickly losing to the machine because the machine is just relentless. How far are we away from machines making decisions within our organizations? And what areas do you see it happening first within an organization? So you know, I'm uh, actually on this con uh, on this idea. I'm not one of those very optimistic people who believe that machines would be taking over all human capabilities. Mm -hmm. 
we have always had models, algorithms of decision making, you know, think about scenario planning or think about the prediction models that we have about, on weather forecasts. We are doing exceptionally well on those dis- models. Yeah. And uh, that takes in past data, there's future assumptions required, but at some point, uh, assumptions have to be built in into the models and a lot of those predictions forecast assumptions have to be subjective mm-hmm. and uh, look at for example what happened in the 2008 crisis none of these models could predict that so as much as we are now including algorithms artificial intelligence into you know our everyday daily making decision making like for example hiring as an example we're now doing that regularly where we screen candidates based on certain keywords, certain yeah. characteristics. But at the end of it, most hiring managers would be uh, would be would not agree to just handing over everything to the algorithms because the human element still needs to be there. Well, so, actually, it's, it's funny yeah. when you, you sorry, it's, it's sorry to cut across you. It's funny uh-huh. when you mentioned hiring and, and tech because my next question was about bias. I read a recent uh, article about a hiring um, algorithm by a tech company. And mm-hmm. essentially what they, they rolled it out and what they found was the AI behind the algorithm found that they had 70% men in their organizations. So the AI machine said, let's try and hire 70% men. So question here is, are we building our biases into those machines that are making decisions for us? Absolutely, right? And in fact, what the example that you've just given me is, is an is a bias which we perhaps were not even aware of and mm-hmm. the ai algorithm has picked it up from what it observed around us right so some of the biases are deliberate and we we put them into the models but some of them is are uh, we are unconscious to them and the algorithms are picking on so of course the assumptions the worldview around us is what the algorithm will be building on mm-hmm. so it cannot be bias free in that sense and are there any sort of simple processes or examples that you're aware of uh, that a business leader could, listening right now, could implement today or tomorrow around decision making in terms of reducing bias within their organization? Many, 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 right? So I think uh, one of the examples that we have had a conversation on before was on the checklists. Mm. Right. So uh, there are these uh, surgeons who now constantly create use checklists for simple, simple steps such as washing hands. And I think if I'm not wrong, there was a statistic that you share that uh, the mortality rate uh, dropped by 22 percent just by this one simple checklist of have you washed your hands or not. Mm. Uh, and and so so that checklists are powerful, and I want to re-emphasize that also because not just for surgeons, it has been shown scientifically by data that this also is very useful for pilots. Oh, so uh, so if this is useful, so checklists are useful for surgeons and for pilots. Uh, I think it has its relevance for organizational leaders as well. And in fact, as we climb up the leadership ladder more and more, we start to tend to think uh, that uh, we are not foolish, we are not unintelligent (laughs) to not remember these basic steps. But I think that is the power power of this. So I actually call these kind of uh, checklists and other tools decision support tools, right? They Mm. help us support, facilitate the decision-making process. So another example that comes to my mind is um, this technique, which a lot of companies have now started using, which is called the note and vote technique. Mm. 
So let me just elaborate a bit here, you know. So the diversity is kind of a buzzword that most businesses want today. We want to hire for diversity. We want to organize teams around that and so on. So the idea is that uh, let's create independent thought and viewpoints, and that is going to reduce the errors of judgments and bring more accuracy to decisions. Mm. That's pretty yeah. much the idea. Now, however, what you look look around and what see what happens in teams. Uh, typically, it's the boss that sets the tone of the meeting. A few people follow through very quickly, and the entire process is hijacked. <laughs> typically, this is also called the groupthink bias. You know, yes. everyone starts thinking as a group, or like sunflower bias, that you know everyone is pointing towards the sun, uh, which is the leader of the organization, and so on. Yeah. So one strategy which several companies have now started doing is uh, before even. Getting into the meeting of uh, where you have to make a decision of, let's say, a no, a go or no go decision or new project, a new hire or a new investment or whatever it might be, think just note down your own opinion and your own vote independently and then vote. So instead of voting first, note down first and then vote. That's yeah. another very good strategy that yeah. uh, that is very effective actually. That's interesting. It, it it actually brings out the because we hear a lot about diversity. That actually brings out the diverse thought in the room. Yeah, exactly. And anonymous. Basically, the anonymity part is the most important part of this, right? So, yeah. so that. And then I think on the issue of meetings, I think for me, and I've been looking at some of the numbers that are coming out from the data surveys that have been collected. I think meetings are one of the biggest time killers yeah. today. And, you know, typically meetings start late, they go on for a long period of time, default setting for meeting is uh, one hour. I've always and... been stunned how, how many meetings last exactly 60 minutes, uh, always stunned yeah. me. Yeah, and, and uh, I mean, so if you think about it, I was reading it somewhere, if you think about it, five minutes starting late is already 8% of uh, wastage on an hour. Mm. And if you think about money as a resource no ceo would allow that kind of uh, slack yeah but in in time we don't think about it as much so i think there is a lot of things com companies organizations in terms of these simple simple decision support tools that they're using in managing the meetings now so the, you know default time has to be reduced to 30 minutes uh, let's stand up and have the meetings instead of sitting down i think that's a very good strategy also uh, you know, because people are not going to slack, they'll be moving about fast yeah. and thinking fast. So I think uh, reduce the number of invitees to the meeting. Not everyone needs to be present. So uh, a lot of things are happening on that aspect also. Yeah. And uh, just we, we talked a little bit there about biases. Um, can you talk a little bit about subjective decisions and how it does affect business leaders? So we know we have these biases, but how does it actually play out in the real world? So I think subjectivity basically is is all around us, right? Uh, and what that means is that uh, different people have different viewpoints. And where is the subjectivity coming from? It's probably from their belief systems, from their education, mm -hmm. background, experience, all of it combined. So it's basically the worldview that dictates a person's feelings, thinking, behaviors, actions, all of it. Now, this could be coming from, let's say, personality of the person. 
So some people, and this is really common, some people, and as they climb up the ladder, leadership ladder, they start demonstrating uh, unnecessary, unwarranted levels of overconfidence yeah. uh, in their forecasts, in their decisions, and so on. So it could be coming from personality. It could also be coming from the culture that they belong to, right? So um, a very stereotypical way of saying it, but for example, East Asian cultures are known to be non-confrontational. Mm. It both in their body language and also in their verbal language. Mm. So the way they look at things and the way we look at them when we are interacting with them, it's, it's, that creates the subtleties. Language is another way which uh, creates subjectivity, right? So as an example, I think one of my favorite examples is the use of war metaphors in business today. Yeah. We treat business like war. Uh, I nailed the presentation. We killed yeah. competition. We won the tender. So that clearly affects how we will behave with our colleagues or with our competitors and other companies or even families and friends. Mm. So personalities, cultures, languages, emotions. Emotions are also a big part. Uh, they play a big role in how we think about uh, subjective decisions, right? So if you are angry versus if you are anxious, that is going to be definitely influencing the way you make decisions in the moment. Can you talk then about, because uh, I'm aware of the term framing. So mm -hmm. how do business leaders frame their decisions? Is that the same way? Are we talking about the same thing there in terms of subjective decision making? Right. So I think, let me give you a metaphor here. Um, mm. Frames are like windows, right? So if you check in into a hotel, uh, let's yeah. say with the view to the uh, to the mountains, mm. now you will find one window that gives you one fixed view. Mm. Another room would have given you another view. The typical, the issue here is that we are fixed with our frames. And yeah, as, as I said before, they're coming from culture or personalities or experience or even the media that we are here getting access to and so on. So the, the problem is, and research has consistently been showing that we don't, we have very, very narrow frames. Uh, we don't look at enough options. We think of decisions in binary terms. It is either a yes or a no, go mm. or no go, uh, and, and so on. So we are not thinking or framing the question or the decision to be made broad enough. Mm. And that is, I think, the bigger issue. So the, that's the concept of framing there. So it's it's almost like we always get the keys to the same room with the same view. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, after some time, if if I can, we can take that metaphor further. <laughs> the more experienced we are, we start liking the same room, and we just don't want to change. <laughs> so uh, we 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 could all and the listener could probably extract extrapolate how that would affect an individual. Can you change that as an individual, or do you simply need other eyes to sort of spot your faults and your peripheral vision? So basically, the underlying process of changing this is to get more and more opinions. Mm. Now that is easier if you have other opinions around you from other people, right? So the yeah. idea of, let's say, let's have someone who plays the devil's advocate. Mm. So it's easier if you have someone else. But having said that, it is also possible that you can play your own devil's advocate, right? So, and one way for that would be to think of, it's a very simple uh, tool that you can use for yourself. Imagine your best friend coming to you and 
asking you the exact same question that you have. What <laughs> advice would you give to that person? And in many instances, you'll realize that what you are providing as an advice is totally different from what you yeah. yourself are doing. So I think that already gives you some sense of very thoughts. That's that's really interesting. And I and I'd wonder if obviously it does happen with the CEO as you were talking about there that that sunflower syndrome. It must be difficult for CEOs to actually get those people around them. Would you advise that this would be a uh, a requisite really of a modern leader? to get that uh, devil's advocate in the room with them all the time. Absolutely, absolutely. I think uh, for the CEOs, a couple of things. One, have people who have very different viewpoints than yours, people who are deliberately trying to figure out how things might go wrong. Uh, in fact, there are people who now conduct pre-mortems, you know, like post-mortems are typically done when things have gone wrong to figure yeah. out what might have gone wrong and what really happened. Companies, leaders, excellent leaders are actually doing pre-mortems and figuring, out, trying to figure out if things go wrong, why would they go wrong? So yeah. having those people on board with you is is crucial. So that's one. And second, of course, the we've said that before, but I think it's really worth mentioning again that we CEOs, leaders need to speak last. You know, they have to get in hold on to their judgment, I mean, hold off, not hold mm. on, hold off their judgment if, un unless everyone in the room has spoken. That's interesting. I, I remember uh, I heard a story, Bill Clinton was famous for that. He would stay silent for an entire meeting and then sum it up perfectly at the end in about 30 seconds. Yeah, that's that's awesome. <laughs> um, I came across a phrase in your materials that stood out to me, that we are, as humans, predictably irrational. It's hard to think of a phrase that describes humans more accurately. But what does it mean when you apply it to a leader in their organization? How can you rationally lead a group of irrational people? You know, it's just even if actually, it's predictable. Right. So it's the, the best thing is, um, so this is this quote, actually, this predictably irrational comes from one of one of my favorite scholars, Dan Early. He has a book by this name. So uh, and an, an excellent book to read as well. So tons of research is based is now telling us that our minds are wrong and we are biased and we are not doing the optimal and so on. But the, the beauty is that it's that predictable part, right? That yeah. we are able to systematically study it, find patterns and how we can go wrong and then act on it and do better. So I think that gives the opportunity to the leaders and to ourselves. Uh, and I, I would also like to say that we are leading ourselves also. We are also the CEO of our own lives, right? So yeah. to be able to um, find ways that we can do better. So basically that phrase for me means there is hope. <laughs> There's hope for us all. Yeah. And uh, you, talked, uh, you talked a little bit about there about going back to default thinking. Where does this default thinking lead to? And what areas in an organization does it have most impacts on? Default thinking is so inherently basic to our mind that you can see it playing out in all spheres. Think about hiring, you know, or mm. performance management or even project assessments. So in hiring, for example, our tendency is to like somebody who is from our same background, who we share the same hobbies with. So and that gives us this mini me bias kind of thing. Right. So we love love to create an organization that is mini me. 
<laughs> that is full of mini me's yeah. and uh, that's that's one and then you know also related to the um, to the hiring process is this idea of cultural fitness i think over and over again we hear people say that we did not hire a particular person because he was culturally or she was culturally misfit in the organization mm-hmm. now i think that's a very very vague term and what i have noticed is that it's used as a cover up for these biases stereotypes which perhaps are not uh, politically correct to say yeah 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 someone who doesn't speak the perfect english or mm-hmm. someone who is not good at small talk or someone who has a family and perhaps we expect we think that this person is not going to be working overtime on the weekends and so on so it's not really okay to say that the person has family and so we cannot hire this person so we yeah. rather just say he doesn't or she doesn't culturally fit with us yeah. so you know there are these stereotypes and biases which are just all around us and uh, some sometimes we don't see it because of these uh, these cover ups that we've created another another example that i could think of which is actually very relevant today is women in leadership positions yeah and there is so much work around why is it that women are not getting onto the leadership positions as much as they should have been and uh, there's a there's fantastic work done by professor uh, linda babcock uh, who basically shows that women end up volunteering for non promotable tasks so promotable huh. non promotable tasks which are not challenging they're time consuming they don't drive revenues or actually don't lead up to any performance appraisals or you know promotions mm-hmm. and so on but somehow need to be done yeah so what she's found is that it's the women who end up volunteering for them not because they are good at it or not because they like it but because they themselves stereotype that they should be the ones taking care of it so so and- it's it's their <laughs> own inherent bias about themselves of exactly of what they think they they expect from, from themselves and what they think that the world expects from themselves it's so so it's so that, that's it's, that's definitely yeah. a cultural viewpoint that's been built through culture not through anything else not through anything else exactly so i think basically there are tons of examples if you look closely in an organization or in just in you know in your immediate workplace that mm-hmm. we can find low quality default thinking that that tendency of the human brain to revert to default is always been a central theme in in neuroscience how do you get out of that default mindset um let's take it from an individual point of view how would you get yourself out of default mindset thinking especially particularly obviously in terms of decision making uh, you you bring an interesting point it seems we most of us are after this issue of default thinking as if it's just a bad thing yeah you know but from an evolutionary perspective there is it has done wonders for us you know let's not forget the time when we were in a constant flight and fight mode right so if we uh, the early early man days we would not when we faced a lion we would not sit and evaluate the pros and cons <laughs> of course there was there was a reason why we had this very quick default flight or fight mode and uh, however the world uh, order has changed and we are no longer faced with those kind of questions and you know the threats are today are different so so in that sense first my disclaimer is that defaults do not have to be bad actually they do serve a meaning and mm-hmm. purpose having said that i think one some of the ways of getting out of the default basically the the first big way is to hold off the judgment right we're so quick in making our first instinctive decisions or judgments about mm. 
people or events that after that it's just a series of confirming and confirming evidence mm. what i mean to say is you know once i have created an opinion about somebody let's say i'm trying to hire somebody and i just happened to see this person yesterday in the office and i noticed she did not smile enough or she was mm. not being courteous to the uh, to the front desk and i have already started creating my judgment about i think she's not going to be warm and kind or competent mm -hmm. and then after that when i for example if i'm interviewing this candidate today i'm going to try and find evidence that confirms <laughs> her belief yeah so the point is i think to get rid of the default setting we have to find ways that can disconfirm the evidence that we've already started creating in our minds so as an example if i do not like if i do not like a colleague or in my personal life if i don't like somebody list down every day all the things that the person might actually have done good <laughs> so so i try and start creating a favorable view because we know we are already catching on on the negative view but there are probably good things that are happening around us so talk my, to my, sorry my mind goes <laughs> my mind goes straight to uh the democrats and republicans and trump and all that in america and trying to make a, a, a list a, a list of nice things about donald trump would be a, would be a tough tough task <laughs> so you see but actually that is exactly what is an example of confirmation bias which i'm talking yeah. about here right so the the democrats are are never looking at fox news and the mm. republicans are only looking at fox news mm. so it is important to actually look at other media and figure out why i might be wrong which is not our inherent nature in the first place to do so well this has been fascinating uh, the final question i mentioned at the top of the show about the leadership decision making program can you give uh, can you give us a glimpse of what that is and what benefits uh, participants would expect coming out of it so I think it's going to be an ambitious 10-week journey, right? We are very ambitious on that, uh, and a couple of things, a, f uh, a few things to highlight there. The spirit is exactly what we have discussed in the podcast, right? So, create a joint understanding of the complexities of today's decision-making environment. Hmm. What is it that creates the complexities? Understand the challenges that the leaders are facing today. Also, to assess ourselves. how we are in terms of these biases and judgments what are the different techniques and tools we can use and develop for effective decision making and 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 here i want to actually uh take a take a side step here because mm. i want to highlight this idea that very very rarely we will have universal uh tools nudges and devising techniques mm. it is really context specific you know so if the target we need to understand what the context is what organization is uh, is looking for and we also want to cultivate the idea of experimentation yeah uh, because as i said there are no unique one right solutions and so there has to be this idea of this comfort with experimenting what works what doesn't work this idea of ab testing for example yeah so that that is important and we'll want to learn also to how do you we create that comfort around it we also want to understand how do we create the mindset and the culture to accept this kind of constant change a personalized action plan for the participants to work with 
we will uh, we will have dr simon haslam a leading expert on decision making he'll mm. join us for the program as well we will also uh, have participants get continuous coaching and support to reflect and iterate i think the idea is that it's not a one um one mini capsule that you're going to take a pill on decision making it's <laughs> going to be a 10 week journey because i think the the problem is that we are so uh we're so embedded in this way of one way of thinking that we have to have constant practice and routine to get out of that and start a new new journey yeah oh if only there was a pill for these things <laughs> <laughs> it's it sounds like there it's it's sort of being comfortable with discomfort i suppose and and complexity being comfortable working within those environments absolutely i think you know one of the things that we are looking at in organizations these days is uh, they they understand organizations leaders understand the value of uh, of constantly experimenting and testing mm. however there is a lot of fear about first what should i do second how should i do it who should we mm. get on board there there are lots of mechanisms now put in place in organizations to collect data but what do i do with that data so you know there is this merging that needs to be done between the business side and the data side of course i have people i can get people who will analyze the data find the insights for me but i also need to find the people who will ask the right questions yeah so i think that is that is the part which is missing today in organizations and uh, that that brings in the fear of you know should what should i do can i experiment and uh, so that's what we want to create also in the in the program the comfort with these kind of new strategies and ways of thinking well it it all sounds fascinating and and thanks so much for for taking the time today and yeah we look forward to seeing you soon thank you